0: Um, and I will refer to some of them in the course of the lecture. Okay. Now let me just set out my material. Um, there are two main Laplanche... For this week, there are two main Laplanche texts. Um, one I'll, it functions as a sort of theoretical overview um, with a strong sort of philosophical edge to it. Um, And the other one is a much more clinically based um, working through of specific concepts. Um, That's chapter three uh, from the New Foundations in Psychoanalysis um, book. Okay. (coughs) Um, And I won't say much about that but we'll work through that in class. And I've I've suggested ways of breaking it down into five different topics. uh, And we'll work our way through those very specific topics in in the seminar um, but uh, what I want is I want to work through some of the major points in the overview essay, the essay that's called the unfinished Copernican revolution. In particular I want to sort of go over so that you've got some grip on this uh, analogy um, between cosmology and psychoanalysis and what, what what the idea of a Copernican revolution might be um, which is talked about in a lot of disciplinary areas as an exemplary moment of modern scientific thought and which Freud himself um, declares his allegiance to. Uh, <coughs> and Laplanche revisits that notion of a Copernican revolution and sees uh, Freud's Freudian revolution as an incomplete, unfinished Copernican revolution. Okay? And he wants to complicate the metaphor of, of being comp- of the of the of the opposition between the Copernican and the Ptolemaic, okay, and those are c- be important terms as a sort of metaphorical shorthand for for distinguishing between different logics and different conceptual frameworks in psychoanalysis, and and I think they also help us to think about Shakespeare and, and Sophocles' two tragedies, and which I want to end the term with. So <coughs> I want to go over this notion of the of what a, uh, the analogy between the psychoanalytic revolution in thought and the uh, Copernican revolution. Okay. Um, however, what I, want to, what I want to begin with, um, instead of moving from psychoanalysis to literature, I want to begin with literature. I want to begin with the Blake poem, and I've given you that poem in the handout for this week. Okay, some of you may have looked it up already. Um, Blake's poem The The Mental Traveller it's a very powerful poem but rather in in many ways a very enigmatic poem and a lot of Blake scholars would quite rightly point to um, the rather obscure recherché symbolic systems that Blake experimented with or invented for himself etc but I think um, something comes over very very powerfully in the poem um, that is independent of any esoteric knowledge Uh, about uh, Blakeian or other symbolic systems. So I'm just going to read the beginning and the ending of the poem Um, uh, and let it sort of hang there, as it were, um, to cast its shadow or its light on the theoretical um, uh, developments I'll be talking about. Okay, so the the poem begins, uh, I travelled through a land of men, a land of men and women too, and heard and saw such dreadful things as cold earth wanderers never knew. For there the babe is born in joy, that was begotten in dire woe, just as we reap in joy the fruit which we in bitter tears did sow. And if the babe is born a boy, he's given to a woman old, who nails him down upon a rock, catches his shrieks in cups of gold. She binds iron thorns around his head. She pierces both his hands and feet. She cuts his heart out at his side to make it feel both cold and heat. Sorry, I've lost my face. Her fingers number every nerve just as a miser counts his gold. She lives upon his shrieks and cries and she grows young as he grows old till he becomes a bleeding youth and she becomes a virgin bright. Then he rends up his manacles and binds her down for his delight. He plants himself in all her nerves, just as a husband man, his mold, and she becomes his dwelling place and garden fruitful 70 fold. It goes through a series of cycles between youth and age, male and female, in the course of the poem, and the poem ends Like the wild stag she flees away, her fear plants many a thicket wild, while he pursues her night and day, by various arts of love, beguiled, by various arts of love and hate, till the wide desert planted o'er with labyrinths of wayward love, where roam the lion, wolf, and boar, till he becomes a wayward babe, and she a weeping woman old, then many a lover wanders here. The sun and stars are nearer rolled. The trees bring forth sweet ecstasy to all who in the desert roam, till many a city there is built and many a pleasant shepherd's home. But when they find the frowning babe, terror strikes through the region wide. They cry, the babe, the babe is born, flee away on every side. For who dare touch the frowning form, his arm is withered to its root. Like lions, boars, wolves, all howling, flee, and every tree hath shed its fruit. And none can touch that frowning form except it be a woman old. She nails him down upon a rock and all is done as I have told. Right. extraordinarily powerful, if uh, mysterious, uh, a poetic or allegorical narrative of the generations of men and the transmissions from one generation to another. So I'll just let that hang there, as it were. Okay, Laplanche. Laplanche uh, is um, not as um, well uh, read or known in English as the other French psychoanalyst, Jacques Lacan. Um, Laplanche, in fact, was an analyst and student of Lacan's and broke from him um, in the early 60s. He's been quite a, an influential and... Um, omnipresent figure in French psychoanalysis since the early 60s uh, he's the scientific director of the team of the translation team which is still in the process of producing the first oeuvre complete in French hitherto French translations. there've been many partial translations of Freud into French often wildly inaccurate uh, such that people teaching um, psychoanalysis often had to do their own translations of Freud because um, the, the, uh, the existing ones were so misleading. Um, so he, uh, he has organised that project which has been going now for about 20 odd years um, and it's sort of two thirds of the way through a 20 a, a, a volume series which will bring the whole of Freud into French for the first time in a, in a consistent translation like the Strachey Standard Edition. Okay. He's also being the co-author with jean Bertrand Pontalis of uh, the great vocabulary or or dictionary of psychoanalysis, which is a conceptual dictionary. It's not just like an ordinary dictionary where you look up a word and get its its, uh, definition. Um, It's an attempt to map the conceptual field of psychoanalysis um, (coughs) in a framework derived from the French tradition in the history and philosophy of science, which sees the development of scientific thought very much in terms of the development of conceptual fields um, as configurations of concepts rather than as it were um, isolated or individual propositions or or hypotheses or, or um, a, a, um, accumulated bits of knowledge as it were. Um, it's, the, it's the the history of <coughs> conceptual fields uh, and the way in which those conceptual fields are organized as much by what they exclude as by what they include what they stop people from saying or thinking, as it were, as well as what they enable, the kinds of propositions they enable um, thought to produce. Okay. Um, <coughs> and he has, it was Lacan who coined the phrase a return to Freud, uh, which was partly uh, produced you know, in reaction against the, you know, the appallingly bad translations of Freud that were in circulation in France in the 40s and, and 50s. Um, but I think it's arguably the case that Laplanche has actually implemented a return to Freud in a very syst- much more systematic and thorough way than Lacan ever really wanted to do or did do. Um, and in a series of volumes, The Problematique, um, he, uh, which was a series of lectures at the Sorbonne over, over a 20-year period, he systematically works his way through, um, uh, through Freud's work, interrogating it, tracing its... Its shifts, its moments of impasse, of blockage, um, its repetitions, uh, uh, etc., um, and out of that emerges a um, a very uh, ambitious attempt to, as it were, re-found um, uh, psychoanalysis, not by rejecting Freud, but by a particular reading of Freud mm. um, uh, that, as it were. Diagnoses the Freudian field as organized around contending, even opposing conceptual logics, um, which, and that's what he's going to sort of metaphorically designate as Copernican and Ptolemaic. Okay, so it's, an, it's a conceptual field that is pulled by two different gravitational forces, pulling it in different directions. Um, <coughs> so he wants to. Um, uh, reposition those two tendencies of Freudian thought, in particularly to, 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 to uh, assign a dominant place to, a framing place to what he's calling uh, the Copernican dimension of Freudian thought. Um, and he proposes a new, found, he wrote a book, which chapter three that we're looking at tomorrow comes from New Foundations for Psychoanalysis. New foundations for psychoanalysis, which are based on a retrieval and a development and and a radicalization of one of those tendencies in Freudian thought. This doesn't mean, however, he simply wants to exclude the other. It's not simply a distinction between false and true. Um, uh, Because his position about, um, certainly about psychoanalysis, and and in some ways it's a a more general position about the nature of scientific thought, is that. the development of a conceptual field um, replicates in its own um, evolution or its own development um, the, the development of the object of study. Okay. The, 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 the development or move, the movement of, and the process of formation of the object of study is replicated in, in the thought that seeks to grasp it and analyse it conceptually. Uh, so this very strong, for instance, Ptolemaic or self-centering tendency in Freudian thought uh, replicates a dimension of the human psyche. So it's not just false. It generates impasses and problems that have to be uh, dealt with, uh, but, it's, but it's not just a question of truth versus error. Okay? Um, it, it indicates a logic of, 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 of closure and self-centering in both at work in Freud's own thinking, but it's at work in Freud's own thinking because it's at work in the human psyche, as it were. And so the um, different, the different uh, gravitational forces that are at work on, uh, on psychoanalysis as a conceptual field are the, as it were, replication at the level of theory of forces that are at work in the object of psychoanalysis, which is the, hum- humans, the human psyche. So that's the ge- sort of the general position, if you like, um, Okay, and in particular, he returns to um, that moment of the uh, theory of seduction, which he calls uh, a restricted theory of, of seduction, uh, in the papers up to 1896. Um, and the letter of, of repudiation or abandonment of that model, which I've, re- I've re-photocopied and included in the, in the supplementary material for this week, uh, of September. 1897, where he, where Freud gives four reasons for thinking actually my my theory of seduction, you know, uh, is is unsustainable. It, it, it can't quite grasp what it's meant to grasp. Um, now Laplanche returns to that moment um, and wants to argue that, uh, as I think I probably signalled when we were looking at the, those papers, that in in dealing with the pathological cases that. Uh, led Freud to talk about uh, the primacy of, of seduction, stroke, sexual abuse in early childhood. Um, Freud is encountering a general structure, but he doesn't recognize it as such. He sees it as uh, a, a speci- ab- abusive events that give rise to pathological outcomes. Okay. So it's entirely on the field of psychopathology. Um, uh, <coughs> And he doesn't realise that what he's encountering is a general structure, almost like a general law, you could almost say, uh, that, re- that governs the relationship of one generation to another, of the adult world to the, um, the infants that are born into, into the adult world. So um, when uh, Freud repudiates his theory of seduction, and he does that officially, but it never goes away, that model of traumatic seduction keeps returning in various forms throughout Freud's career. Um, <clears throat> uh, when he does that, um, he, as it were, throws the baby out with the bathwater. That is to say, he loses certain crucial dimensions. And so Laplanche sees that moment as what he calls a voiement. And he, 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 he um, raises that notion of a voiement, of going astray to an almost methodological principle or a methodological concept for thinking about Uh, um, uh, the development of psychoanalysis. And he sees it, and he's fascinated by cosmology because he sees a similar kind of process at work in um, the whole development of the great Ptolemaic synthesis in in cosmology. Um, The difference between cosmology and psychoanalysis is that you can't say of the universe that it... That, that it, it went through a Ptolemaic phase and then went through a Copernican phase, as it were. Whereas you can say that of the human psyche, um, is 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 is, um, is uh, Laplanche's argument uh, that, this, that the, the human infant begins in this dependent relationship, circling round the orbit of the other, as it were, um, centred on the other, um, uh, and then moves to towards a, a a phase of self centering and 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 enclosure in on itself, um, separating from uh, that and repudiating that earlier dependent relationship to the other, and so in a sense, um, in terms of the metaphor, uh, the human infant passes from a, a Copernican to a Ptolemaic um, phase of uh, of development. Okay, so this this. This situation of, of what he calls primal, a general theory of primal seduction, not a restricted theory. An analogy here is analogy he gives, I think, with Argen, uh, Einstein and uh, the way in which Newtonian physics is not just dismissed as being false once the theory of relativity has been formulated, but it's been signed, assigned a regional phase. It gives uh, Newtonian physics describes, uh, accurately enough, uh, the operations of physical processes and objects under certain conditions. But the move is from a a restricted theory to a general theory. That's what he wants to uh, argue. um, He's he's doing okay. That we need. He wants to propose as new foundations for psychoanalysis what he calls not a restricted but a general theory. So it's not restricted to psychopathology and to neurotic outcomes. Okay, it's an account of uh, the formation of human psychic life. Uh, and of human sexuality in general, so it's a general theory um, of what he calls primal seduction, um, by which he does not mean abusive sexual abuse or abusive events. Okay, um, but the the um, leading in and le- uh, of the infant into the human adult world. Um, <coughs> And he calls this the f- fundamental anthropological situation of the human being. Which is, m- which is universal in the proper sense. It's not... Whereas you could say um, the, wo- uh, the dependency of the infant on the mother is, is a culturally determined thing. Some cultures assign the mother and the father different roles which will vary with different kinship systems. But what is universal to all human beings is uh, some sort of relationship, however it's culturally determined or culturally mediated, some sort of relationship between an adult who may or may not be a parent uh, or the child's parents, a nurturing supportive adult and and a human infant. And the adult is fully formed with an ego and an unconscious and a sexuality and the infant as yet lacks all those things. Okay. Um, <coughs> now, he starts off with this cosmological analogy with that essay of Freud's um, that I asked you to read and which was uh, uh, one of the scanned extracts uh, where Freud sets up this explanatory narrative of the three blows. He gives a, a kind of condensed account of human narcissism and he sees... Uh, modern science is developing in three major moments in which uh, a blow to human narcissism uh, is delivered by the movement of science. Okay. Uh, the first one is in the field of cosmology uh, where um, uh, the old Ptolemaic synthesis in which the world is at the center of the universe, everything turns around the earth. Um, <coughs> Uh, and, and, and that seemed to be supported by common sense, as it were. What happens, the sun comes up in the east in the morning, and you can see it going across the sky, and it goes down in the west, and it turns up again the next morning, you know, it's self-evident. The sun goes around the earth, you know, how could you doubt it? Okay, And it was considered also irreligious and impious to doubt it, because cosmology wasn't just a sort of neutral scientific modelling of the universe. It was a, it's a story about the gods and their relationship to men, and, and, and how... Um, uh, the Earth came to be formed in a, a sacred uh, cosmogony, as it were. Um, so uh, the first blow is that line of thought which, uh, of which Copernicus is the modern representative and he lends his name to it, the Copernican Revolution. But actually, it goes right back to early Greek thinkers, Aristarchus of Samos being um, uh, the, the best known, um, who argued, no, in fact, um, the, the, uh, uh, the Earth moves around the sun, um, and so the heliocentric, rather than the geocentric, hypothesis, um, was formulated by early thinkers. But they were always fairly marginalised <coughs> and sometimes under attack as, um, as not just being wrong but being heretics. Um, and uh, Ptolemy of Alexandria was the one who, who synthesised and brought together um, the, the opposite um, uh, cosmological argument and with increasingly complex models of. Uh, of, the, of the different cycles around which, in which the planets uh, moved. Um, and they were c- continually coming up into uh, predictions that didn't work, and then they just have, they'd just then have to sort of invent another supplementary hypothesis to explain why um, uh, such and such a thing didn't happen on such and such a day, which it should have if they're modelling of um, the cycles of the, of the uh, stars and the planets going around the Earth. Uh, were correct. So it became more and more and more complex as further and further supplementary hypotheses um, were invented to sort of uh, close the gap between prediction and observation. Okay. Now this is not just a cosmological um, uh, challenge as it were to the self-love of humankind where we are at the center of everything. Everything centers on us. Okay. There's also um, the uh, uh, the uh, what Freud calls the biological bloat, human narcissism, uh, dealt with by by, the theory of evolution and by the figure of Darwin, who was one of Freud's great heroes, uh, where, uh, again, uh, received legendary and and religious accounts of the origins of humankind as the creation of the gods and in the image of God or the gods uh, and put in place to rule over the lower animals uh, is, is th- completely displaced by the theory of evolution, which sees um, us as simply one of one mammalian species that has gained um, uh, through uh, ad- a capacity to adapt to circumstances uh, and the, through evolution of, of, cer- of that uh, of various adaptive capacities gained a kind of dominance in the life world of this particular planet as it were, so a decentering um, of man in relationship to uh, uh, the animal world of which it is simply um, a a, a sort of species. And the third blow Freud um, offers is a psychological blow delivered by psychoanalysis um, that the ego um, uh, which seeks to control and regulate the psyche and to direct um, uh, um, uh, mental processes and uh, and behavior um, (coughs) comes up against a the drives, uh, and B the unconscious. Uh, that there is something in in its in its own mental world that is opaque to its own scrutiny, and um, and, in, in, and very often simply uncontrollable, um, uh, which Freud formulates in the, the famous proposition: the ego discovers that it is not master in its own house. The ego is not master in its own house, that is to say, in the world of the mind. Um, And in particular, there's a paragraph that Laplanche makes much of. um, With certain uh, mental disorders and certain neuroses, the ego feels uneasy. It comes up against limits to its power in its own house, the mind. Thoughts emerge suddenly without one's knowing where they come from, nor can one do anything to drive them away, as in obsessional thought. These alien guests even seem to be more powerful than those which are at the ego's command. They resist all the well-proved measures of enforcement used by the will, remain unmoved by logical refutation, and are unaffected by the contradictory assertions of reality. Or else impulses appear, which seem like those of a stranger, so that the ego disowns them, yet it has to fear them and take precautions against them. The ego says to itself, this is an illness, a foreign invasion. It increases its vigilance and cannot understand why it feels so strangely paralysed. So quite a vivid little evocation of the impotence of the ego um, when faced with with, it, uh, it, with the, mi- the mind, um, the whole of the mind. Um, and psychoanalysis, and is the, in Freud's account, is the third n- blow to human narcissism, the third decentering, where where. Uh, the subject is decentered, not just in relation to the cosmos, not just in relationship to uh, all other living forms, but in relation to itself. Uh, uh, the human subject is is, is is not as the ego um, almost is constitutionally um, aspires to be is not the center and, and, and not the con- certainly not the controlling center uh, of the mind at all; it is simply one um, uh, one entity or one process within the within the larger organization of the mind. Um, and it is regularly impotent when faced with uh, mental forces. That it can neither understand nor control. Okay, so that's Freud's account of the, uh, of, uh, of the Copernican revolution, which, which is, as it were, displaced across into other fields, and which he sees, he, he, he pays his allegiance to it, you know, that, that he has done something similar in the field of psychology. Now, Laplanche takes that up, um, but he wants to do something different with it, as he says. That, uh, he's, he, his account of it isn't um, quite as straightforward um, uh, in terms of the relationship between Freud uh, and the notion of decentering. Um, and he, th- he, he says, um, where is this page? And I'm, qu- I'm quoting now from the uh, Unfinished Copernican Revolution essay which I think gives an overall framework for um, what we'll be looking at. Um, yeah, he says on, on page 55, what is at stake in what we neatly term the Copernican Revolution is a question of centering, which is at the outset, which at the outset seems limited to a change of simply astronomical centre, from the Earth is no longer the centre, to the Sun is the centre. Uh, but actually the, what heliocentrism, theories made clear uh, was that if the Earth and many of the planets may move around the sun, but the fixed, so-called fixed stars clearly don't. Um, uh, therefore, they seem to be uh, in another system. That is to say, you have to then start thinking in terms of regional solar systems. There's a sun with the planets that move around it, but that's by no means an exhaustive account of the cosmos. There are other systems... Uh, uh, and so uh, the heliocentric hypothesis opens up the possibility of an in-principle, infinite physical universe where there is no single centre, as it were. So a, de- a de-centred cosmos, which may be made up of local, locally-centred um, solar systems, as it were. Now, in, the f- in relation to Freud... Um <coughs> He makes a quite interesting—I won't spend time on it—but he makes uh, a quite interesting point in passing about the epistemological decentering that is entailed by uh, the Copernican revolution. That is to say, a decentering at the level of thought. That is to say, um, in both philosophical traditions, those of empiricism and uh, which is associated mainly with the British philosophical tradition, um, Locke, etc., um, or in the tradition of German idealism. Represented by Kant and later Husserl, both of whom he, he, he cites, um, this decentering takes place. That is to say, it means that you can't assume that the world is formed or preformed, if you like, so as to be uh, intelligible to, exhaustible by, transparent to human thought. Uh, the assumptions behind the sort of Lockean empiricism was often that reality could be known through sense perceptions, and therefore, in some sense, uh, the world out there was, was as it were, it constituted ontologically so as to be knowable, to be perceivable, and we could gain accurate knowledge through our perceptions, and uh, in more complicated versions through processing of our of our perceptions. But the world, in some sense, conformed itself. To our capacities for knowledge. And in a way, a similar assumption is there in Kant uh, with his theory of a transcendental ego or transcendental subject uh, who uh, uh, enables us to partially know the world of epiphenomena uh, through the cat- Kantian categories space, time, causality, etc., which are wi- hardwired into our brains, as it were. I mean, Kant always allows for the thing itself, the ding an sech, which escapes our categories. But as it were, at a practical or pragmatic level, uh, the the, the a priori categories wired into the human brain, as it were, uh, are adequate. Um, And both those assumptions are called into question, um, that there is nothing in principle knowable necessarily about the world um, uh, and what we think we know. Uh, isn't, as it were, guaranteed uh, in, ad- in advance. Um, Descartes rather desperately said that, you know, we, that God made sure that our perceptions and the objects of perception somehow rather fitted uh, and that some evil demon wasn't there tricking us into thinking, you know, we knew the world when, when, when we didn't. Um, however, it's with Freud and the connection with Freud that I want to uh, develop um, some of his... Thoughts. Um, he says, uh, in, he quotes the, the relevant stuff from Freud, where Freud aligns himself with the Copernican revolution as the third um, de-centering movement um, of thought. Uh, he says, if Freud is his own Copernicus, however, he is also his own Ptolemy. If Freud is his own Copernicus, he is also his own Ptolemy. Um, <coughs> Uh, The revolution in uh, cosmology lasted two millennia. In psychoanalysis, everything essentially is produced by a single man. Simultaneously, the discovery, um, (coughs) uh, which is conjointly that of the unconscious and of seduction, and the going astray, the wrong path taken each time, there was a return to a theory of self-centering, even at times of self-begetting. So he sees the Copernican, um, the movement of, others, of, of other-centered uh, thought and the, and, to, and the Ptolemaic, the movement back onto it, re-centering on the, on the ego um, as being always at work in, in, in Freud's thought. At almost every period, there is an alternation between relapses into Ptolemaism and resurgences of the Copernican other-centered vision. Resurgences, reaffirmations, which are often deepenings, Thus, it is that seduction, although theoretically denied its foundational value and quotes, abandoned, continues to pursue a secret pathway, an underground development, even under the reign of the dominant Ptolemaism. Similarly, there are major uh, reaffirmations of other centeredness, um, uh, which kind of open up and then are closed off again. Um, the, very, the notion of the id or the it um, as something that lives us rather than we living it. Um, but then it gets biologized uh, and, and, um, uh, and it becomes primordial. What's at stake here then are two notions of the unconscious which fight it out in Freud's thought. One is um, an unconscious that is, con- uh, that is uh, constructed by repression, a repressed unconscious. It's created by repression. So it's a, it's a formation, a construction that takes place over time. It's not there from the beginning. And I've given you a little extract from in the, in the handout from Freud's 1915 essay on um, on repression, um, where he talks about primal repression. Maybe I'll just read that out to you. Um, okay. Uh, yes, it's it's on the third sheet in from. The f- from the front, uh, it begins with two letters of Freud's, uh, and then there's this little quotation um, from Freud's 1915 paper on repression, where well, he makes the distinction between secondary repression and primary repression. Okay, um, in secondary repression, um, <clears throat> things that come into the mind that are distressing or disturbing, um, and 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 so they're uh, and so they're repressed. They come from elsewhere, but they're repressed, as it were. Um, but that can only happen if the boundary between conscious and unconscious, if, if a separate system, has already, in some sense, has been instituted. And it's primal repression uh, that does that. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so that's the hypothesis, Freud infers. For secondary repression to, hap- to be able to happen, something else has to, uh, there's a precondition. <coughs> We have here to assume that there is a primal repression, a first phase of repression, which consists in the psychical, the ideational representative of the drive being denied entrance into the conscious. With this, a fixation is established. The representative in question persists unaltered from then onwards. This is on the right-hand side, page 525. With, that, with this, a fixation is established. The representative, the mental representative in question, persists unaltered from then onwards, and the drive remains attached to it. This is due to the properties of unconscious processes of which we shall speak later. The second stage of repression, repression proper, affects mental derivatives of the repressed representative, or such trains of thought originating elsewhere that have come into associative connection with the repressed representative. On account of this association, these ideas experience the same fate as what was primarily repressed. Repression proper, therefore, is actually an after pressure. Moreover, it is a mistake to emphasize only the repulsion which operates from the direction of the conscious upon what is repressed. Quite as important is the attraction exercised by what was primarily, repre- primarily repressed upon everything on which it can estu- with, it, with which it can establish a connection. Probably the trend towards repression would fail in its purpose, if these two forces did not cooperate, if there was not something previously repressed, ready to receive what is repelled from consciousness. So it's this notion of a, of a primal repression, which is bound up with an exclusion of a mental, of an idea of a vorstelung, a mental representation, from consciousness, which, which is a representative of the drive, and which fixates the drive from there on to that representative. Okay, so a process of exclusion and fixation which lays down the primary elements of the unconscious, so the unconscious is, is, is being formed here, okay, and what is being repressed is being created by repression okay it 's not simply welling up from within um, as, as, as if out of the, the body, um, which is how Freud finally, in his account of the drive that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, he sees. Uh, actually when he, there he's talking about the instinct as much as the drive um, he sees this as a kind of pressure um, exerted on the mind by bodily needs uh, and, and, and uh, bodily instinctual pressure. Um, uh, now what's at stake here is the notion of something being formed or constructed. It's not there from the beginning. Okay. In a way the moment of fixation is the moment where the drive comes into being as such and it remains permanently anchored to that um, that um that representation, which is now um, excluded and in the unconscious. To a moment of exclusion and fixation, which creates the primal repressed. OK. Um, now, that's uh, aligned, um, Laplace would argue, with the notion of um, uh, with the Copernican perspective in psychoanalytic thought. And I'll, I'll spell out that how or why in a minute. Um, the alternative notion of the unconscious is something that's primordially there from the beginning, okay? uh, which, is a, which is a sort of primary um, uh, layer um, uh, and uh, consciousness and the ego uh, uh, like, a, like a building or like a structure uh, are built on top of it in successive uh, l- levels of complexity, as it were. So the, un- the unconscious is primal in that it comes first. Uh, whereas in the other model, the unconscious is a secondary formation, okay, which isn't there from the beginning, um, and which is constructed through um, uh, exclusion, fixation, through primal repression. So there are these two quite radically antithetical notions of the unconscious that you will find uh, again and again fighting it out in, in Freud's thought. Now, Laplanche wants to associate um, uh, <coughs> the discovery of the unconscious as something which is not our center. It's that which decenters us, it decenters the ego. Now, problem with um, accounts of the second topography and of the id, by biologizing the id, and in effect, in, in, effect, in, uh, in, in uh, collapsing together the previous distinction between instinct and drive and biologizing the id, um, and making the unconscious this bedrock, as it were, um, it becomes foundational and supportive, um, even if at times um, uh, upsetting, um, rather than that which decenters um, and which is eccentric or um, <coughs> uh, away from any, uh, uh, any centering, as it were. Um, it becomes that, that which supports um, The ego. Now, that this puts at risk what he calls the alienness of the unconscious. And the word he uses in French is um, he doesn't use the word. Um, let me write it up here. Uh, strangeness, um, which in French is étrangeté, um, but he uses this neologism, uh, étranjérité, um, and we had real problems. How do you translate that into English? Um, because it would be <coughs> Strange earnest. not strangeness, which is étrangeté, but etrangerite. Uh, strange earnest. Uh, and the problem if, with using that word would be simply uh, well, it seems really weird in English, but also the notion of strangeness is, in English is weaker than the French "étrange étranger um, because in English, something's strange, and then we get used to it. And it stops being strange. Um, it becomes familiar. So strangeness in that sense is in the eye of the beholder in English. So we wanted a word that was much more, su- that suggested the irreducible otherness that's at stake here. Um, so we translated it as, as alienness. <coughs> but we put in a hyphen. Um, to keep, Because it's the noun. It's an, in other words, it's, a, it's an abstract noun formed from a concrete noun, not from an adjective. So strange earnest, um, or alien ness, to bring out that presence of the other in the unconscious. Okay, so it's not just an adjective designating you know a quality or attribute, um, but it's des- d- it, the the otherness or alienness of the unconscious depends on, t- if you like, what, what Laplanche calls two others: the internal other and the external other. Uh, And it's there in Freud's German, though it's not systematically theorized, in two usages of Freud that Laplanche seizes on, um, das andere and der andere. Das andere is the third third, um, um, declension. It's the it. It's the the neuter. We don't have it really in English. because uh, we don't have the same tightly gendered system that a lot of continental languages have. Um, it's, uh, das andere is the, the other thing we have to supply a noun because we, we can't alter the ending of the adjective to signal that. So das andere, der andere is the other person. Uh, now that, that, that um, distinction is there in Freud's German. Um, the other thing in the unconscious um, that deposit of alienness in the unconscious, can only be preserved and not, as it were, um, dissolved away um, by uh, relating it to the other person, this pr- primordial other figure in relationship to whom and in some sense against whom uh, the unconscious is formed by the subject. enabled to understand how that happens, this is his major or one of his major criticisms of Freud's thought, that there's there's an absent dimension, the dimension of what he wants to call the message, um, the transmission of something from uh, the adult to the infant, um, something that can't be dissolved away into simply... um, which has a kind of quasi-objectivity, if you like. Um, So he does use the term from linguistics that Lacan uses, the, the notion of a signifier which is a signifying element, an element that delivers or carries a meaning. It can be a word or it, may, it might be a gesture, um, it might be uh, something visual, like a terribly simple example would be the, the um, traffic code where red is the signifier for stop, green is the signifier that, that communicates the meaning go. So it needn't be, um, it can be gestural, there's a whole repertoire of gestures that can carry meanings etc. So it's the transmission of, of, of something, that is, it's not just the transition of a meaning, like a pure concept, it's the, transli- it's the transmission of a material element. It may be uh, a, a, quality, a voice, something that's voiced, it may be tactile, it might be visual, but it's some, something that, as it were, makes a sign uh, to, uh, on the part of the transmitter uh, to the figure that, who, who, who's being targeted. In this case, it's the infant. Okay. So it's that transmission that's crucial from the adult to the infant. <coughs> and it's a transmission that is opaque. Okay? It becomes designified. Um, it, uh <coughs> and I've given you... Uh, I sent you the, um, the, the little extract from pages... 40, from the of earlier chapter of, the, of, the, of New Foundations um, from uh, pages 44 and 45... Um, <laughs> he's here he's very much at odds with Lacan uh, but Lacan uh, talks about the primacy of the signifier, by which he means verbal language um, on the whole um, and uh, while he takes over this term from linguistics that Lacan uses, um, he wants to surround it with cautions And he, wants to, he partly wants to take on board a distinction that he finds very useful um, in linguistics Standardly, a distinction is made between the verbal signifier and the signified that is transmitted by the signifier, whether at the level of the word or of um, the phrase um, or of a sequence of signifiers that form an entire sentence. Laplanche-Picq wants to say uh, but a a crucial distinction is that between something that is a signifier of something, that is to say uh, it has a conceptual dimension, a meaning, a signified, and a signifier to, something that is implemented in a speech act and addressed to or targeting a recipient. Okay. Something that, um, in a technical language, interpolates the other, summons, addresses, um, targets, commands atten- the attention of, okay, impacts on the, the, the recipient. Um, and he says... Uh, uh, it's important to understand that this, a signifier can signify to somebody without its addressee necessarily knowing what it signifies. We know that it signifies, but not what it signifies. We know that there is a signifying somewhere, but, there, but it's not necessarily any explicit signifier. We don't have, so we can't assign it a meaning. Yet it's addressing us, it's targeting us. We are, we are its addressee, as it were and he says lacan uses the image of hieroglyphs in the desert or cuneiform characters carved on a tablet of stone we know that they signify and as such they have their own kind of existence which is different from the uh, the existence of phys- just simple physical objects okay they are intended to signify something to us so they are in the mode of an address but we don't <coughs> necessarily know what it is they're saying and he so he says it's important to to consider the possibility that the signifier may be designified, lose what it signifies, without losing its power to signify too. And he says, with this, I'm beginning to outline the theory of what I call the enigmatic signifier, that there is an enigmatic or opaque dimension to the transmissions of discourse, and in particular from the transmissions of the nurturing adult to the infant, which are carriers of, of what might be Preverbal affect. Okay. Now they're enigmatic, not just because the infant doesn't have a code by which it can translate them. They're enigmatic because they're enigmatic to the to the, the transmitter. In other words, they express the unconscious dimension of the adult. So, in saying A to the infant, B or C or D at the level of affect gets transmitted. An infant may not understand what is wanted of them, what, what this is that's impacting on them, uh, but they know it's addressed to them. Okay? It impacts physically on the body. Okay? And this is where the whole idea of a body ego become taken from Freud and Anzie, It becomes very important for, for Laplanche. Um, the enigmatic signifier literally impacts on the skin surfaces of the body on the sensitive, receptive apparatus on the erogenous zones of the infant's body. For me, a classic example of this effect of the enigmatic signifier is that moment in Little Hands where his mother has bathed him and she's carefully powdering around his penis and not touching him. And he notices this, you know, there's this exclusion zone that's being created. And he says, why don't you put your finger there? And she says, that would be schweinish. And he laughs initially and says, oh, but it's great fun. Now, clearly... Um, something is being transmitted that is not being verbalised, exactly. Um, or he's given one uh, verbal thing, which is shrinish, which, which carries a real charge of affect. but has the effect of, as it were, marking out the body, that gesture, that signifying gesture of the mother's, before she verbalises it. Uh, okay. it. It marks out, it zones the body. Um, so, and he, he registers something is being transmitted here. What is it? It's puzzling. You know, because uh, he feels just touching himself there is great fun. Um, so what's wrong with that, as it were? So a structure, a taboo, is being in, in effect being transmitted, not at the level of a, in reading the Riot Act to him. Uh, a bit later, he's told, if you put your finger to it, the doctor will come along and cut it off, um, uh, which, which does, as it were, <laughs> put much more of a taboo on it. And even then he la- he, shoves it, doesn't he shrugs it off and he laughs it off. Freud says that it comes back um, uh, nach treflich afterwards uh, and has its delayed or belated impact at a later point. Uh, a structure of meaning has been laid down um, which is um, belatedly um, belatedly uh, implemented and which organises the subject's relation to their own body. So a notion of enigmatic signification I think is absolutely central to um, Laplanche's thought and, and, and uh, uh, what's most... Uh, productive and radical about his thinking. But he doesn't just have the infant as a kind of passive tabula rasa. The infant processes what impacts on it in a second moment. Attempts to assimilate it, and if you can't assimilate it, expel it. Okay? So there is a, a mixture of translation and expulsion or repression. And in the, the letter, uh, one of the letters I've given you in the handout that Laplanche makes a lot of, um, he argues very strongly that, or uh, well Freud does himself, Freud makes the connection between repression and translation. He says, uh, when certain highly charged material is carried across into a new mental phase of development, something is successfully carried across, but some, something isn't. Something remains untranslated. Something that is too intolerable, too painful, too exciting, too whatever, too forbidden certain materials are not carried across and successfully translated they remain untranslated and freud says such a failure of translation is what we mean by repression a failure of translation it's a really interesting connection so laplanche builds on that insight uh, to uh, reformulating translation as um, sorry repression as a form of failed translation something is carried across of what the other transmits that impacts on me and marks my body in certain ways. And some of it I do not understand, I don't like it, 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 it over excites me, it traumatizes me, it, um, uh, whatever. And it's, it's uh, expelled, it's not translated. Um, and this is the moment of primal repression. Uh, in being expelled, in being non-translated, um, actively non-translated, um, a fixation is laid down which becomes a permanent marker of both the mind and the body okay I think I'll stop at that point Uh, so the notion then of uh, of of, of enigmatic signification and of the translation and failure of translation on the side of the recipient is absolutely core to LaFonture's rethinking of um, the adult child relationship um, and is the, uh, the core of what he means by primal seduction okay and i mean that's the, that is the copernican dimension the relation to the other uh, okay uh, that's that, that's where the the cosmological analogy comes in